19. But, but Saul, still bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he, here he has the authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord who prepared, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes where he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized, taking the food he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. You took Paul at his worst and saved him. You are the God who transforms lives. You transform Paul and you have rescued and changed many of us. Help us to see our story in this story and help us to trust in the mighty power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would transform even the worst of situations in our lives right now and also that you would have mercy on us and help us to understand your word and be changed by it. Amen. Thank you, Nisa. Uh, the first series that I wanted to do this summer is one that I've entitled Hope for Hard Cases. And uh, anybody that knows my story knows that before I got saved, I was in and out of jail all the time. I was living on the streets. I was a drug addict and... Uh, I remember right when things were gearing up for me, I uh, had to meet with a probation officer. It was a really kind and gentle man, very compassionate man. And 
I think it was about 15, and he was trying to warn me of what was ahead for me if I kept persisting. And, uh, and I remember he said something to this effect. He said, young man, I think you're a hard case. But I want you to remember that no matter what happens or how many bad decisions you make, there's always hope for hard cases. And uh, man, that guy was spot on. So in thinking about this first series, you know, I, one of the things that came to my mind is, and maybe you relate to this, I hope that you don't, but I think it's true for all of us at some point in our walk with Jesus, that the longer that we are disciples and the longer that we are in our faith journey, uh, the easier it is for us to get familiar with the gospel and just exactly what it means. And familiarity always breeds complacency, especially in the spiritual sense. And oftentimes we begin to forget just what God saved us from. Uh, we forget just how bad our sin really was and how serious our plight really was when God pulled us out of the ditch. And, and we also tend to forget on the tales of that, just how incredible and powerful God's saving grace truly is. So that's the heart of this series. We're gonna take five weeks uh, and we're gonna consider different stories from scripture and how God breaks into sinners and rebels' lives and saves them with the gospel. Uh, Paul the Apostle is perhaps one of the most famous, infamous, and well-known conversion stories in the Bible. Uh, he's a stunning example of the hopelessness of human religious effort and how it's twisted by our sinful nature and also the shocking depths of uh, God's grace and the lengths that it will go to to save anybody. Um, the main idea that I want us really to consider here in this passage is that even when you and I are dead set against God, the gospel reminds us that he's for us. Even when we're against God, the gospel reminds us that God is for us. Uh, there's many ways that we see that in this story, but I want to think about three together. Three ways that Paul's conversion reminds us that the gospel is always for us. Uh, first, that God delights in saving the worst of the worst. Uh, many times we get saved and we think, well, it wasn't that bad, or I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, look at that dude. That dude's really bad. Man, that's... That's a testimony to the power of the gospel, but me and God are good. But uh, as we saw in uh, Norman's law passage, thinking about how we all are sinful by our nature and fall short, uh, all of us are equally guilty before God. We're all the worst of the worst <laughs> compared to a perfectly holy God. Um, and when we think about Paul, the more you read scripture, the more you get familiar with the apostle. This man who uh, was so incredibly influential and devoted to being an apostle and a disciple of Jesus. But as we read here, there's three accounts. There's this account in Acts chapter nine. There's uh, an account that Paul gives of his conversion in chapter 22. And then when he's making his final defense in chapter 26, he also gives another uh, summary account of his conversion and they build in detail. But here in Acts chapter nine, what we see is uh, not the picture of an apostle yet. What we really see is a picture of a religious extremist. And so, you know, there have been more books written about Paul the apostle than maybe any other apostle, I think. And so what I'm gonna give us is just a thumbnail sketch that gets to the heart of his spiritual plight and why he needed Jesus to literally intervene and stop him on the road. 
Uh, Paul wasn't some deranged lunatic. If you know anything about him, he was a devout Jew by his own description. Uh, he was a man who was born a Roman citizen. Uh, he moved to Jerusalem. Uh, he was trained under what was uh, regarded as one of the most well-renowned rabbis of his day, Gamaliel. He was taught from a very young age uh, to revere God's law and to be devout to the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. Uh, this is a man that believed in the inerrancy of scripture. He believed in God's word uh, as he had it at that time. He also was trained from a very young age to be a Pharisee. By his own description, he, was, uh, he says that he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. It'd be like if somebody said, that's a man's man. In a positive way, they would mean that's a man that other men respect and admire. That's a woman's woman. That's a woman that other women look to and say, that's a woman that I really respect and admire. Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a Navy SEAL of Scripture among Navy SEALs of Scripture, right? Like a guy that everybody would look to and be like, that dude is committed. Uh, and he was. He was also zealous for keeping the law. One of the biggest tragedies of uh, the Pharisees is that they were called to be shepherds of God's people. Uh, but what they view the scriptures as is a way for them to be the religious elite. So they took something that was good in and of itself and they used it as a way to make them spiritually superior to the people that they were actually called to serve. And they also believed that in keeping the law that we could actually please God in a way that would make us reconciled with him. If you're familiar with what that means, it basically means that they believed in a gospel of works. And that's, that's very ironic because any good Pharisee would acknowledge that it's only by the mercy of God and the sacrificial system and his scriptures and the promise of a coming Messiah that we could receive and live in God's mercy. And yet when you look at men like Paul, what do you see? A man who has taken the truth of God, the law of God, and weaponized it in a way that served his own purposes. Paul's also a man that when he speaks about his former life, uh, when he was Saul, he was a man who was zealous for keeping the law. And he felt justified in taking people to account who did not have that same devotion to the scriptures. Uh, so much so that when we see this account, if you're familiar with Acts 8 and Acts 9, when we see this account of Paul's conversion, what we see is a man who is truly convinced that the greatest way that he could honor God would be to persecute people who didn't follow God's law. Saul believed that in protecting God's honor, he would be justified in stomping out any new sect that defied God's law. Where, where would he get that from? If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, history shows us that Israel had this notorious habit that we should all find familiar of having an experience with the real God and then finding another God that's appealing and turning away from God and worshiping it. And so when Paul started hearing about these people who were called followers of the way, who were convinced that this man Jesus was the promised Messiah, it made perfect sense in his heart and in his mind that he needed to stop it. And that's what he set out to do. In his own words in Galatians chapter one, Paul says that in his former life, he was persecuting the church of God beyond all measure and trying to destroy it. At the beginning of chapter eight in the book of Acts, 
it makes this haunting statement about Saul as a young man. Uh, chapter seven and eight recount the testimony of Stephen who was a leader in the church and then he is stoned and murdered for his testimony about Jesus being the promised Messiah. And Acts 8.1 says, and there was a young man named Saul who was standing there and he gave his approval to the murder of one of Jesus' followers. So here in chapter nine, Paul is continuing his mission to protect the purity of God and the purity of true religion and he has received a letter from the high priest and he's going to find more disciples of Jesus and throw them in prison, uh, knowing that in all likelihood if they don't blasphemy Jesus that they'll be murdered. When I think about Paul as a young man in his life as Saul, the tragedy in my mind isn't that he didn't know the truth of scripture. Paul was a man who spent his entire life studying the word of God. It's not that he didn't know the scriptures. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this amazing statement that blows people's minds. Uh, he makes a statement about the law. He says, I have not come to do away with the law, but I have actually come to fulfill it. So the tragedy with Paul, a man who had studied the law of God, the Old Testament scriptures his entire life, wasn't that he didn't know the scriptures. It was that when he heard, and heard about Jesus and when he saw his followers, he rejected the idea that Jesus could be the fulfillment of everything they pointed towards. When we stop and think about that, and we remove it from the circumstances of Paul's life, and what he knew or didn't know about the scriptures, his state before he was saved is very universal to all of us. At the heart of who we were before Jesus saved you and I is we were people who rejected the idea that Jesus might be the Son of God. And that essentially is what Paul was doing. The difference between us and Paul is that he felt it was his religious and spiritual duty to persecute the people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He thought that murder was justified. So in his encounter with Jesus, you know, it's a really, it's a fascinating conversion. There's some things that are universal in his conversion, and there's other things that are pretty unique to Paul's conversion story. Uh, a couple of things that are unique. Uh, this man had a supernatural encounter with the resurrected Jesus. That's important for a lot of different reasons. One is that part of being an apostle, or requirement of being an apostle, was that the men who were called to apostleship needed to witness and see the resurrected Jesus. Paul had that on the road to Damascus. Uh, that's unique to him. None of us are called to be apostles. If you think that you're called to be an apostle, I'd actually really like to talk to you after service about that. Uh, uh, there's other parts that are universal to every one of us as people that have been saved uh, by the work of God. Paul was persecuting Jesus himself whether you and I have felt justified in killing Christians, maybe you fit into that category. I'm gonna kill this guy if he tells me about Jesus one more time. Uh, we've all rejected Jesus and mocked him and his followers in our former life. Even if you've never done it with your words, we've done it by our very nature. I know that's certainly true about myself. If you know Rob's story, one of the parts that I like about it is how he says that once he had even an inkling 
that the gospel might be true, he spent years demolishing everything about it and wrecking anyone who tried to tell him that it might be true. He orchestrated a whole worldview to demolish people who might want to witness about the truth of the gospel to him. Paul was doing the same thing. I remember as a young man, I used to have a shirt uh, that had a picture of the stereotypical European Jesus on it, and underneath it said, Catholic chicks dig me. And the reason why, I know it's so bad, I'm embarrassed to this day thinking about it, and I just was, it just came back to me when I was writing this sermon, and the reason why I wrote that shirt is I wanted to mock people that were devout followers of Jesus. And so I'd wear that shirt hoping that they would come up and get offended so I could mock them. Uh, at the core, Paul's spiritual dilemma is the same that you and I experienced. The idea that we cannot approach God based on our own merit and what we think is good or good enough is at the heart of a gospel of works. And that's at the heart in many ways of what Paul truly believed. That if you could keep the law, you could please God. And if people didn't feel the same way, then they should be persecuted because they were blaspheming God themselves. Most of us are not as extreme as Paul, right? Most of us haven't gotten to the point where we think we're actually justified in killing people who testify to the truth about Jesus. Uh, but we have to think about what Jesus says. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about murder? He says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder. Then he goes on to say that I tell you that anybody who has anger or hatred for his brother in his heart is guilty of committing murder. And when we think about that, we're all just as guilty as Paul was. That also means that we're in just as much need of God's mercy and intervention as Paul was on the road to Damascus. Uh, As guilty as we all are, the gospel also shows us that that mercy is available to us through Christ. Uh, and that brings us to the second way uh, that the story reminds us about what the gospel says, and that's that Jesus welcomes everyone into the church. Jesus welcomes everyone into the church. I bet everybody in this room just hearing that could affirm that in theory, right? If I did a survey, would anybody be like, eh? I mean, some of us probably in the back of our mind are like, eh, I don't know. But all of us, if we were forced, you know, does Jesus welcome everybody in the church? Yes. We could all affirm that. Uh, we can all feel pretty comfortable with the idea of Paul the Apostle being in the church. And one of the biggest reasons that I think that is, is we know the rest of his story. Uh, the entire New Testament bears witness to the men who were called to be apostles about Jesus, and especially Paul in the book of Acts alone. It's like an action-adventure movie that this guy gets drawn into with God. But we know the rest of Paul's story. Imagine for a second how this character Ananias felt. He's just like a cliff note in this story, right? He's a guy that pops up towards the end of this conversion story. But let's think for a minute about Hannah, how he must have felt. Here in, in chapter nine, uh, it records a, kind of a summary version of, uh, of what he says when God calls him to pray for 
uh, Paul's healing. It says in 13 and 14, it says, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he actually has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, if I gave you like the B-dubs translation, I just picture this guy being like, God, can we talk about this for a second? Like, I'm not sure this dude's really aligned with our mission in the church here. I don't know if Paul's a good fit for what we're doing. I'm feeling a little uneasy about going. Uh, Paul, gives, um, Paul gives a little more detail about Ananias' words to him when he prays for his healing in chapter 22. Uh, Paul records in chapter 22, he says that Ananias went to him and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You know, when I think about Ananias, I... I always wonder, like, what, the leap of faith that that man had to take to go to a known persecutor and murderer of Christians and say, hey, I want to pray for you. God's calling you to be one of his. The leap of faith that that man must have had to take. And, you know, as I thought about it during the week, the thing that came to me is that Ananias was a man who knew that he was the worst of the worst, too. And that if God welcomed him into the church, then maybe it was possible that God was going to drag Saul into the church as well and use him as a part of his mission. <clears throat> Here we see God saving a man who was a rebel through and through in Saul of Tarsus uh, and a persecutor of his very own people. And Jesus says that, you know, on the road to Damascus in that conversion event. He literally says to Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? And he gives one of my favorite pictures of the union, the intimacy that you and I have in our identity with Jesus. That when his people are persecuted, he literally is persecuted as well in the same way. One of the things that I love about this story is that it reminds me that God is always more concerned about us modeling the welcoming love of Jesus than keeping us in our comfort zones. And maybe you've had those experiences. Maybe God's called you to witness somebody that you have a really hard time loving. Uh, I could give you a plethora of those. I don't know if I'm like super stubborn, judgmental, if that's actually true. God's always been burning that out of my heart. But I have <laughs> many, many stories of God being like, yeah, I want you to go share the gospel with this dude. I'm like... I will go to Ethiopia tonight. Just don't make me have dinner with the students, share the gospel with them. Please. <laughs> the church is full of people who would be happy to share the gospel with this dude, not me. God's more concerned with me growing in my ability to model and live out of the love of Jesus than he is with me being comfortable with who gets in and who's left out. Uh, the beauty of the gospel is that it constantly reminds you and me that the mercy of God takes everything that you and I think we know about who belongs here 
and it throws it right out the window, right? I mean, that, that, that gospel truth speaks to so much about what we strive for here at Resurrection, and hopefully what every church strives for, that the church is a place that has its doors wide open, and that the mercy of God is shocking to all of us as many times as we see it in action. Uh, the idea that God takes the worst of the worst, welcomes everybody into the church, and creates the spiritual family that's a ragtag outfit of people that nobody else wants anything to do with. That's the church. That's what the church is designed to be. Trophies of God's grace, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Uh, I'm always fascinated with... Um, I'm always fascinated with the way that our brokenness and fallen nature affects humanity. And uh, I remember reading the story about a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. And if you're not familiar with who that is, Jeffrey Dahmer is a serial killer, uh, perhaps one of the most prolific serial killers in the, in the last half century. Uh, between the late 70s and 1990, when he was finally arrested, uh, he was responsible for killing 17 men. And I won't go into detail, but the nature of his murders were absolutely horrifying. Like they shock the conscience. Uh, absolutely horrifying murders. And uh, he was caught, arrested, and I think he was given something like 16 life sentences. Uh, he wasn't given the death penalty. He was given like 16 life sentences. And, uh, of course, everybody wanted to interview him, and he started giving the media interviews. And in one of his interviews, it was televised uh, in the Midwest, I think, where he was. And there's a man named Kurt Booth, who is a Christian. And uh, he later tells a story of listening to one of the interviews between a reporter and Jeffrey Dahmer. And in that interview, Jeffrey Dahmer made the statement that he lived with genuine remorse and regret for what he had done and that he hoped that he could find some sense of peace uh, before he died. And Kurt Booth was a man who knew about the mercy of God. And he writes about how once he heard Jeffrey Dahmer make that statement, he says, I know how this man can experience peace. And so he started writing to Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer, most notorious serial killer in the last 50, 60 years. And he began sharing the gospel with him, and he did a... a a prison correspondence program where he taught him about scripture and he taught him about the gospel over the span of a year. And Jeffrey Dahmer was super responsive, very proactive. They would talk by phone. And finally, Jeffrey Dahmer got to the point where he said, I've done all these things. I believe that God's mercy might be available to me and I, I want to make a profession of faith. I've been reading and studying the Bible and I know that I need to be baptized to profess my faith in Jesus but nobody, I can't find anybody here that'll do that for me. And so Booth got a hold of a local pastor that was near the, press and, uh, near the prison, uh, a man by the name of Ratcliffe, and he asked him if he would do it. And so that man began corresponding with Dahmer and quickly realized this man is serious. And through a series of events, he orchestrated a way to get him baptized. He went to the prison, he baptized Jeffrey Dahmer, as a follower of Jesus after murdering 17 human beings. Ratcliffe just wrote a book last year and in the book he talks about how the moment that he baptized this man, he began receiving hate mail from Christians 
all over the country. He tells a story of one of his own congregants that actually said to him after he baptized Dahmer, he said, if a man like that is in heaven, I don't think I want to be there. That's a Christian. And Ratcliffe talks about how uh, what that taught him is that people were unable to judge Dahmer based on what his baptism and his confession signified. That he was acknowledging that God was doing a supernatural work, taking him out of an old life and bringing him into a new one. And people couldn't get past that. They could only judge him based on his past life. I thought about that story a lot this week, and I realized uh, something that's really interesting. Do you know what Moses, David, and Dahmer all share in common? Two things. They all murdered human beings. They all killed people. And they all came to a point where they realized they needed the mercy of God. And they all got it because they sought it through Jesus. The thing I love about this guy Booth that I learned in reading an article about him is that he's a former prison inmate. The reason, and he heard the gospel for the first time when he was locked up in prison. So the reason why he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll write that guy, because he had been there. And he experienced the mercy of God when he was at his absolute worst. And so the idea of being willing to do that with somebody else was completely reasonable. His heart was in touch with the gospel in that moment. And he responded by sharing and telling somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, yeah, God has a place for you in his church. Every one of us, we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. Every one of us doesn't deserve to be here. Every one of us has a spot that's ours because Jesus has given it to us. We are all just like those men. We are no different. And we have the same gift that those men have in the freedom that Jesus brings us. Uh, and we're called, our calling as disciples is to help other people experience that mercy and freedom that's only available uh, through faith in Christ. And that's the third thing I want us to see uh, from this story is that freed people help others experience freedom. People who are freed from the gospel are eager to, to share that freedom with others. Rob and I have a soft spot for this ministry called Set Free Ministries. Um, and if you're not familiar with this ministry, it's wild. I remember we were in Bible, I don't know if you remember this, we were in Bible college out in El Cajon, and uh, we were at a conference or something, and somebody was like, yeah, there's a Set Free Ministry meeting right next door. And uh, Rob and I were both former drug addicts and criminals, wondering why they kept letting us show up to Bible college campus every week. And we rolled in the next door, and it was amazing. It was like a living picture of everything we hoped and prayed that the church would be. It's this ministry that they go out and they seek and counsel and disciple and share the gospel with anybody, anywhere who's going through anything. We walked into this meeting. It was, there was like bikers. There was homeless people. There was prostitutes sitting around. There was a guy up front teaching the gospel. People were screaming, yelling, clapping, just praising God. It was wild. The worst of the worst, prostitutes, bikers, drug addicts, probably drug dealers in the same room finding out where their customers were. All of them there hearing the gospel, right? It's not unlike Rezprez in some ways. Uh, all you notorious sinners. 
I know who you are. Uh, but the beauty in that ministry is that the doors of that ministry are wide open. They're wide open for anybody that thinks that they might have a place with Jesus. Uh, and the reason why is those people are responding to the gospel and what it means for them and what it's done for them in a way that they're just liberated. They're free from the hang-ups of thinking they know who belongs and who doesn't. And they're just sharing it, just giving it away. Man, you gotta check this out. The entire Christian faith for you and I hinges on the reality of the death and resurrection and the ascension, the heavenly rising, Jesus' earthly rising into the heavens with all power and authority, having conquered death and sin. The entire faith hinges on that truth. And if it's true that God raised his son from the dead and conquered our enemies, then it's also true that he can resurrect anybody into new life. You, me, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. That means that our best efforts don't mean we deserve to be here. But it also means that our worst sins can't keep us out. And when we remember that by reading stories like Paul's conversion, we can't help but be excited to share that truth with other people to help them experience the same freedom that we've experienced. That means that if we're welcome, anybody is. We don't get to pick and choose. I think there's always a part of us that has to fight off this idea that we should kind of guard the door. It means that if we're welcome in God's presence, everybody is. And our role is to welcome everybody into the presence of God. I think what we find in our faith journey when we consider this is uh, that we have the privilege of sharing the beautiful truth of the gospel that if everybody's truly welcomed by Jesus, that everybody has a place. And if everybody has a place here, everybody has a role to play. This is probably the one that I think most Christians kind of like wean off on. You know, everybody starts great. Yes, I'm the worst of the worst. Yes, there's a place for me. Wait a minute, I gotta do, I gotta do something? <laughs> everybody has a role to play in the mission of God in the church. And, and that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say that freed people help others get free. Uh, you and I have testimonies and histories that include both our walk with the Lord and especially our former life that creates a testimony. It creates a story that we can share with other people about who Jesus is and what he did in our lives. In that history and that testimony is something that God has shaped in a very special way that's very particular to you and your experience and your faith journey of coming to faith and being saved and walking with the Lord that is tailor-made for you to share that message of freedom with the people in your lives. Now, a lot of us get intimidated by the idea that uh, you know, to be, to be a good gospel witness, to share the gospel means I need to be good at apologetics. I need to be able to demolish every argument that the atheist has or secularists have. And uh, if we think about Paul as a standard, yeah, that's pretty intimidating. Uh, but that's not what Jesus calls us to. What Jesus calls us to is to witness to the reality that he conquered our enemies for us. 
and that he invaded our lives when we weren't even asking him to and changed us eternally and that that's created a life filled with grace and freedom that is now ours. Now, when I think about sharing that with people, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's not intimidating at all because it's based on me simply saying, look, and we're going to see this in a lot of the stories we're going to study in this series. Uh, it's based on you and I saying, look, I know what I was and I know what I did and God still loves me so much so he gave his son for me and this is how it's transformed my life and that's a historical reality not only Jesus but me and share that with others and help them experience the same thing Ananias did that did that for a man who he knew was coming to Damascus to kill him and his friends think about Paul if you're familiar with the New Testament Paul is in many ways the most prolific writer in the New Testament uh, here is a man who went from somebody that was convinced that he was called to persecute and to kill Christians uh, to a man who would travel the entire ancient world planting churches and sharing the gospel with other people if you know the end of his story he would eventually like Peter he would eventually be persecuted and martyred for his faith Paul went from a man that thought the best thing that he could do is to stop Jesus and to kill his followers to a man who said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's a statement every one of us can get behind. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. And behind that message is the reality that though we deserved God's judgment, he gave us mercy. And not only that, he gave us freedom. And after freedom, he set us free to share that beautiful message with other people. That's a gift that we have, but it's also a privilege and it's a responsibility that you and I have to be willing to share the worst of the worst of us as a way of pointing people towards Christ so they could see how truly beautiful his love is and how powerful his salvation is. Amen? Let's pray and thank God for that beautiful truth together. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your son. We thank you that the gospel never changes, Lord. That the message that saved us, the truth that saved every one of us, is the same message that gives us purpose and meaning and value and significance in this life. And that that never changes, that you never change, that your word never changes, and that the gospel is as true today as it is the very moment that you saved us from ourselves. Father, I pray that as we all consider this, that you would give us a renewed sensitivity to the beauty of that, to the beauty of your son, and to the beauty of the freedom that you've given us through him. And that you give us a renewed and deepened sense of gratitude for the calling that you've given us as people who have been freed and are given the, the incredible opportunity to share that freedom with others. 
Father, I pray that you would make us a church that has one eye on you and one eye on the door, welcoming everybody who's convinced that they don't have a place here and helping them experience your love. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.